You're listening to Law, Life, and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Thank you very much, Harry Droz and Paul Bass. I'm Betsy Kim. We're about a month into a new year where resolutions seem to be less about losing weight and quitting smoking, but instead about pursuing happier lives. Today, Cultural trends seem to focus more on finding greater purpose and living more intentional lives. Can people actually commit to and succeed in making their lives happier and more meaningful? Quinnipiac sociology professor Suzanne Hudd teaches a course called The Pursuit of Happiness. She received her undergraduate degree and PhD in sociology from Yale University. Using a sociological lens, Dr. Hudd joins us today to talk more about learning to live a more satisfying life. And also we're joined by New York psychologist, psychotherapist, Dr. Elizabeth Stringer, another Yale University graduate. She'll discuss the psychological approach to pursuing meaning, purpose, and happiness. So welcome to our program. Thank you. <laughs> nice to be here. Great. We're really delighted that you're here. So first off, Dr. Hud, you teach Sociology 300 on pursuing happiness. Can you tell us what is the real focus of your class? What are you hoping your students walk away with? Well, we begin the class with self-awareness. I think self-awareness is a foundation to really having happiness and understanding happiness, but we contrast that with the social messages that students often receive about happiness. And so there's this constant tension in the class between what your inside, what's your insides are saying to you and what kinds of messages you're getting from the outside world. One of the big things that I work on with the class is self-compassion because of that tension and conflict. They often beat themselves up for not following those messages when in reality, the message following the message wouldn't really make them any happier or might make them less happy. And so we structure the class in, in kind of two sequences. In the first half of the class, they go through a series of exercises that research has shown to um, improve quality of life and happiness. And then in the second half of the class, they implement an exercise of their own for a month long project. And they try and work on their own happiness um, during the second half of the month. And so the real trick is their ability, I think, to listen to those messages and be able to distinguish what matters to them versus what someone outside of them is telling them. Okay. And, um... So what do you think the tools, those messages you try to impart to your students, could you tell us briefly what some of those are? I don't try to impart any messages to my students, but what I try to do is get them to be attentive. I'm a certified mindfulness counselor. Mm -hmm. um, mindfulness is really the foundation of happiness, being aware of the things in your environment that don't sit well with you. So I don't tell them what's going to sit well or what's not. For example, I hate to shop. Some of my students love to shop. If they shopping makes them happy, I'm not gonna tell them not to shop because I don't think shopping is right. So it's really about them becoming their authentic self and them defining and deciding what it is by just noticing day to day. Sometimes I tell them, sometimes it's removing something from your life that's gonna make you happier. Maybe a toxic person who, when you spend time with that person, you're doing things that you wouldn't ordinarily do yourself. And so you need to extract that. Um, or maybe it's adding something to your life, spending more time in nature, something that research has shown can increase your quality of life. The professor Hud has a sociological perspective with her background. But I assume many people see shrinks because they want to be happier. So this is a life skill that you, Dr. Stringer, teach patients as well. So Dr. Stringer, if a basically high-functioning individual came to you to just psychologically be happier, what are some of the strategic steps you'd advise them to take? Well, I, I think a lot of the things that, that Professor Hud is suggesting are very similar to what happens in the consulting room. Because uh, a lot if someone is functioning pretty well, uh, chances are the other areas of their life don't need as much attention, but oftentimes the discontent does come from the discrepancy between what their inner 
more authentic self wants and dealing with the outside messages. So um, sometimes they're not aware that those are the, the inside messages are there. So sometimes increasing self-awareness is one of the things that we're trying to have happen. Um, I mean, of course, there are other sort of more concrete tasks that can be involved. Um, I mean, there are ways to teach different sorts of mindfulness. Um, and you can, but, uh, you know, as, as you kind of said in, in our earlier conversations, there's not one size fits all for that. I mean, focusing on the breath is one that's very common, but for some people that makes them more anxious. Um, so you can do things like focus on sound, <laughs> um, and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I mean, I, I guess the other thing I would say is that there are also fairly high functioning people who have a fair amount of difficulty either with their family relationships or with their intimate relationships. And that is an area that therapy can be extremely helpful for to try to identify what are some of the not so helpful patterns that that people find themselves in and and but then have to reroute them yeah yeah professor hud i notice there are so many self-help books articles and videos for people to learn how to live more intentional purposeful meaningful lives sociologically why has this become such a popular cultural trend well, I go back when I thought about this, I go back to Durkheim um, studying during the Industrial Re Revolution. He um, examined, he was one of the founders really of sociology and he examined suicide rates. And what he found was this concept that sociologists call anomie, this mm -hmm. sense of disconnectedness from society. So yeah. imagine going from a farm onto a factory assembly line, your whole world is kind of turned upside down. Mm -hmm. um, he associates anomie with this idea of disconnection and rapid change that happens in society. And one of the books that we actually use in this class is called The Power of Ritual. Casper um, Turkheil is the author. Really excellent book. The students love it. Um, and he talks about the period of time that we're in now as a paradigm shift, that the way we're forming communities and the way we're creating connections is just totally upside down from what we did, say, a decade ago. And so I think um, that coupled with rising consumerism, social media platforms constantly in, you know, they're adding new ones every day, it seems, from my perspective, um, that all those things kind of lead us to desire and crave this permanence, this sense of stability, mm -hmm. the idea of connecting to something longer term that has meaning. Uh, the phrase people often use, I'm, I found my people. Um, finding a group of people that you can do something with and, and have that kind of deep connection is becoming harder and harder. I think it's interesting the way sociology looks at happiness from a societal point of view often people connect with the community or perhaps getting outside of their heads in some way. Dr. Stringer, is it ever a struggle if someone is being overly introspective in pursuing a life of happiness, which is an internal concept of happiness, but through purpose, which by its definition should be about getting outside of the self-absorption of being in one's own head? There's something to what you're saying, um, but usually if someone is that far in their own head, it, it falls more into the category of what we call rumination than actual self-reflection. And sometimes it can be kind of hard to tell the difference, but if somebody is kind of going over and over the same material all the time, then something else besides self-awareness and introspection is actually happening. Um, and in fact, one of the things that can be doing is kind of rehearsing certain grooves of thought that that in, make it more likely that those patterns of thought are gonna stay there. Um, so sometimes one of the things that therapy can do is help illuminate that and then encourage somebody to uh, find ways to reroute that um, and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I mean, ideally, 
I mean, sometimes what happens is that somebody who's in a state of distress does become more self temporarily self-absorbed. And there's a sort of common misunderstanding that if they go into therapy, it's just going to make that worse. But oftentimes there's a, a phase of needing to do actual introspection and, and internal work in order to feel well enough to then turn to the outside world and be able to interact with it very well. So do you both feel toxic narcissism has become far too prevalent in our culture? And if so, what have been the effects of this? So Professor Hud first in society and then Dr. Stringer for the individual and the people around that person. Yeah, um, I, I'm not, I don't, I've not seen statistics on toxic narcissism, so I have no idea clinically, I guess, um, Elizabeth, you could speak to that more so than myself. I will say that um, I can speak in terms of values and sociologists look at values and culture and, and there has been a value shift away from things like democracy and equality and, and toward things like self-fulfillment and self-development, that people are more individualistic these days in their orientation and society certainly is, involves a give and take, right? I'm going to have to make sacrifices and compromises to stay within the regulations of society that might not often fit my personal rules. Um, narcissists tend to be takers, right? They want attention. They want you to focus on them um, in an unhealthy, really, sense of themselves. It's, they're overly self-aware. Um, and so I think um, that that kind of shift has occurred over time and, and we're sort of drawn to these people who are out there speaking all the time and they're speaking loudly um, and they're drawing our attention in and, and part of us says, well, maybe I should be doing that too. Maybe I should be getting that attention. Um, so that's, I think, culturally a lot of what's happening these days. Dr. Stringer, for an individual and the person around that person, um, can you address that? Thought of narcissism or the phenomenon? Um, it's a very complicated question, so I'm going to try to streamline the answer a little bit. I mean, in terms of the culture, I think it's been happening for a few decades now. There was a book um, you you might remember, um, Professor Hyde. It was called The Culture of Narcissism, and it came out um, 20, 25 years ago. And I tip something was the author. I can't can't remember his name, but anyway, so I think it's been accumulating. Um, and I, there was a book that came out some years ago called Bowling Alone, which was about this sort of shift in, you know, group interaction that, that tended to emerge after World War II because there was so much having to come together and how the culture was moving more and more towards becoming individualistic. But um it's tricky because I also think there are some gender issues involved. Um, for instance, I think even though there are shifts, there are ways in which um, girls and women are often much more socialized to be focused on the other person. And so um, allowing themselves to also take into account their own needs, not in a mutually exclusive way with the other's needs, it, it can be an important part of somebody's psychotherapy. And I often get a little bit annoyed if I read an article by a, a, a guy who suddenly in late middle age discovered that, that, that focusing on the group and, and the meaning in, in engaging with, with the group is this newfound phenomenon. Uh, sometimes I can get a little annoyed by that. That being said, I also think for, for both genders, yes, there is um, some cultural shift in that direction. Um, I think social media has played a role. There's a lot of performative aspects to that. Um, uh, I, 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 that's, that's long-winded. <laughs> answer to your question and I'm not sure I fully answered it yeah you know, out of curiosity before our program I actually started taking online Yale's Coursera course on happiness and it's a pretty good class. and I believe it's the most popular open class they have with more than four million people taking it so I did want to ask 
you know, you addressed how we got here a little, but mm -hmm. also you think this seeking happiness has always been a painful part of the human condition, Professor Hood? Uh, you can go back to Aristotle who wrote about happiness. So it definitely has been around a long time. It's something we've been interested in pursuing. Uh, the general social survey, if you look at from around in the 1990s to present, the responses, so they go out and they just survey a random sample of Americans, how happy they are. And happiness has been declining since the 1990s. Um, part of it being that rapid change that's going on in our culture. And part of it I'd attribute to a term sociologists use, cultural lag. The idea that when I'm, I'm old enough to remember when people started carrying cell phones around and you would go to the movie theater and you'd be sitting there and inevitably somebody's phone would go off, that our behavior kind of lags behind the technology. This was before they put the thing up now to remind you to shut your phone off because they hadn't compensated or accounted for the fact that people would be bringing them in movie theaters. And some social researchers have observed that over time, so if you go back to the early 1900s, say cars, washing machines, it could take decades before the average homeowner had a car, <clears throat> excuse me, or a washer dryer. It's now a handful of years that the technology is shifting on us. So again, that sort of rapid change that Durkheim referred to is just leading us in this direction that we're sort of lost. I mean, if all these changes are happening, you know, what's going to happen next? I'm kind of sitting there in a perpetual state of waiting for the next thing. You no, know, one of the exercises in the Coursera class that I referenced is selecting your greatest strengths to boost your own happiness. And for example, one description was perseverance, courage. I persist toward my goals despite obstacles, discouragements, or disappointment. And I don't know. It seemed a little grandiose for me to make such proclamations about myself. You know, maybe a little too self-involved for my comfort level. But Dr. Stringer, what is the appropriate balance between positively appreciating yourself and your attributes and shameless braggadocio? It's a it's a good question. Um and uh Again, I think traditionally there has been a bit of a gender gap about that. Um, I think it's it's shifted somewhat. Um, I think, um, and I also think that, um, for instance, if you learn about competition from your father versus your mother, you're more likely to feel comfortable with that form of um, self-expression. Um, and so I think kind of being aware of when it's useful to have that form of self-expression and when it's gonna be respected and, and expected um, can be useful, but also, being aware of no matter who they are or what gender they are, if you keep doing that, they perceive you as a jerk. Um, it can also be very helpful. But I think, I think ideally what we're all sort of looking for is trying to find a way to balance what our own individual needs, desires, goals are, and how to, how to balance that with what the needs of the community are. Well, I saw an interesting TED talk with psychologist, and he said there are three types of happiness in satisfying life. One, the pleasant life, and this includes having as many pleasing emotions and experiences as possible. And I think that's like traveling, entertainment, and sport. To the good life, and he also called this the flow of being very engaged in something, totally into something that you really love, so you lose track of time. Maybe like this program, Law, Life, and Culture for me. <laughs> but and then number three, the meaningful life, and this was using your greatest strengths in service of something larger than yourself. Professor Hud, do you agree with this way of framing a plan for him? Yeah, the sociologist in me likes the fact that I'm going out from my head 
then to something, it's still me, but I, and I'm in the zone. So I'm sort of starting to move out. And then that third level is really completely out there, right? I've connected to something outside of myself. So sociologically, I like it a lot. I thought of it, when I think about it in terms of my students who are 20 years old, they come to college thinking it's going to give them the sense of purpose. It's going to help them find that. So they really don't, many of the students in my class don't have that level of happiness. It, it kind of makes me think happiness is somewhat of a relative thing. And maybe, I don't know if there's research on this, but maybe it's age related. In other words, there's a certain amount of maturity for me to make those kind of connections that are deeper and richer in the community. And so for right now, simplistically, my students would would want college to give them that answer. What is my purpose? <laughs> but we all know being as old as we are that it's not that easy, right? It's not gonna happen that fast. It can I just make a comment about that? There's a, there's a couple of studies, and you all may have heard this, but that apparently there's a U-curve of happiness that, that goes down and the bottom of it is in middle age and then comes back up again when people are older. Um, nobody has come up with a solid theory about why that is, but they have observed it. Um, and also developmentally, where the 20-year-olds are, I mean, one of the things about teenage and late adolescence does have to do with identity formation and trying to to identify what their purpose is. I mean, it, it, it's a developmental task. So mm -hmm. it's not surprising that you know, the students that you're seeing are in that place. Interestingly, Dr. Seligman's uh, research said that the pleasant life was the shortest lived and the meaningful one um, provided the greatest satisfaction. So Dr. Stringer, can you address that aspect of uh, Feldman's theory? And if you agree with it, and I know you've described that it's a long process, but if you could provide any uh, thoughts on a workable plan to turn this life philosophy into an actionable plan. Well, I guess my position is that ideally you want all three to some extent. Um, it's hard to imagine going through life without some dimensions of pleasant experience. Um, and in fact, enjoying certain aspects of that are pleasant, like, you know, some of the basics like food and so on. Um, it's interesting. I'm not sure what he means by the shortest. Does he mean the shortest lived? Yes. Um, okay. I mean, I suppose if you become a, um, the word that's coming to mind isn't quite what I want. Profligate is what's coming to mind. I mean, if, if all your focus is just on getting pleasure, yeah, I mean, you might get into drugs, you might get into alcohol, you know, you might, you can get into a lot of dangerous situations that would shorten your life. Um, but obviously you want some of that in there. Um, that being said, I also remember when I was about 13, I had an uncle who was uh, a news broadcaster and was quite well known and had lived a very exciting life. And I had a grandmother who was, who actually ended up living to 101. And I remember thinking, do I want a short, exciting life? <laughs> do I want a long, boring life? Like grandma. Well, first of all, in in my maturity, I realized the degree to which I had completely underestimated my grandmother. <laughs> um, and all a all the experiences that she'd been through, and and she raised six kids, and so on. I think initially, I had wanted an exciting life, like. My uncle, I think over time, um, some of the choices I've made have probably don't have the same quite peak experiences, um, but they do also don't have the terrible valleys that that included. Um, so, I mean, I do think you need peak experiences in your life, but I think that the pursuit of the what he called the meaningful life is extremely important. 
You're listening to Law, Life, and Culture with psychologist, psychotherapist Elizabeth Springer and Quinnipiac sociology professor Sue Hudd on WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. So Dr. Hudd, can you also address what you advise your students in balancing the pleasant life, good life, and meaningful life into one life? Would there be maybe a ratio of 20, 20, 60, or in balancing those three components? Yeah. Um, first, I will say that one of the things I tell my students is I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm here to as a facilitator. And, and I don't know to what degree. We've not really talked about how many of them are seeing psychotherapists, but many of them do present sometimes in their papers and things, life issues, certainly school just by itself. I, I look at my students. So I went to Yale. I never felt the level of stress or pressure that I see my students demonstrating in my classroom. It's really, it's unfortunate to me that society had, and the forces that they feel, because I don't think it's them. I just think it's coming from outside of them and particularly getting a degree school, you know, is a long-term adventure and think about all those things I said about how rapidly everything else in society is happening, but I got to wait four years. And now really it's up to six years in many cases for people yeah. to graduate and get their degree. And so your day-to-day -day life might not have that, those pleasurable moments as much because you got three papers due. So this is something we actively, very actively talk about in class. The importance of stepping back. I tell them I always take a walk every day, even if it's just a 15 minute walk, even if I have something due in an hour, I will sometimes get up from my desk and go for that walk because I'll put more fresh energy towards something and it's good. But in terms of the balance and like, so they're going to have this day-to-day -day job that's going to be extremely stressful. Um, you know, an example, many of my students go into social work. That's going to be really hard work. It's going to be emotional. It's going to be draining. Um, so I think there are many things that they could do to sort of switch it up in terms of when they come home, having their own little rituals and having their own practices. Turkile, one of the authors of the books talks about this, the idea of setting up your own habits and rituals that relax you in a way. He shuts down his phone on Friday night and calls it sabbatical and lights a candle, makes it kind of ceremonial. End of the work week, I'm into something else. So I think it's really important to strike those balances and take care of yourself. Good advice. Now, there's a lot of emphasis on being present and in the moment to enjoy about our life every day before it slips away. And article mm -hmm. in the New York Times, for example, one technique was to run your fingers up and down the other hand and count to, and do it 10 times, do it to the other hand. Or to another article had mentioned, focus 20 seconds on three things you see, then 20 seconds on three things here than 20 seconds on three things you can feel. And I think these tools are to calm anxiety and also to bring people into present so you're not worrying about the future. But Dr. Stringer, can you address what you think about these techniques for reducing anxiety and getting people more in the present and what to you that means being in the present? Yeah, um, I mean, I think they're great if they work for you. Um, and I, it, what these kinds of techniques are so not one size fits all. Um, I mean, as I mentioned before that, you know, some people, if they focus on their breath, that makes them more anxious and it tightens them up. But if they listen to sound, then, then they can get into that space. So if you do that activity and you find a benefit from it, that the benefit that's intended, great. But if that doesn't work, it doesn't mean that there isn't another one out there that might work for you. You just have to keep looking for it. I've kind of wondered with these techniques, are some of them a form of psychological procrastination? Like all the things I'm worried about for tomorrow will still be there. And maybe worry can be motivation for me to take care of the things so I will get them off my mind. Well, there is something to that. And one of the things they often studies have shown is that a little bit of anxiety for accomplishing things, whether it's an exam or whatever, can be a helpful thing. That being said, I mean, apropos of the, the mindfulness, um, there's, there's a group of uh, 
mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy people who then who studied with some original Buddhists like Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, they talk, one of the distinctions I really like is the distinction between being and doing. And that what happens is if you get too caught up in the doing mode, you're not spending a lot of time being. And so those techniques are intended to sort of bring you back to the being mode where you are more grounded, you are in the present, but it doesn't mean you're never in the doing mode. There are things that have to get taken care of to, for food, clothing, shelter. Um, but even those, there is a way to do them where you're more present. And and like some people don't want to deal with sort of the basics of everyday life because they're afraid they're going to be bored. And if you do them in a more mindful way, they're not so boring. Um, so, I know history, economics, and a lot of other complex factors come into play, but where does an individual mental health come into play with our country's larger sociological health? And because isn't society the collection of all these individuals and their own psychologies? And so do you think it's if people took better care of themselves mentally, that would help avert some of the larger breakdowns in our society? Sociologists, we use a term agency versus structure. And agency is my feeling, my ability to act. So age, mental health problems descend on people. They're not actively out looking to acquire a mental health problem. The structure, instead of me, and, and there are things I could certainly do if I, I was depressed, for example, but there are also structural things. That's what sociologists look at. What, what could our structure, how could our structure change? So it takes my anxious students as an example, who are in my class struggling with the workload and the stresses that they feel. How could we align or do something different with college such that they would have a better experience that would acknowledge the fact that they're going through all that they're going through? So maybe a more relaxed class environment, maybe less classes, maybe less credits that they would have to take. Um, I find myself, that's what drew me to this happiness class. I actually went and listened to a couple of sessions when we went into the pandemic mode in uh, March of 2020. I had never taught online. So I said, I'm going to try something online just to see what this looks like. And I actually looked at the Yale happiness class and I thought, wow, you know, this is something I bet students are afraid. I bet that level of anxiety, it, it made me that in conjunction with being in that mindfulness class made me say, wait a minute, there's a human condition here. I'm dealing with humans. And right now this is an extremely stressful situation. And so I changed the structure of the class. We started every class with a dialogue about where people were and what was going on. And I think that's a small level structural change. We really need some bigger level structural changes that would allow for the fact that we know we have high rates, a third of adolescents now suffer from anxiety. We know that's a problem. How can we fix the system to make it better for them in the system? Dr. Stringer, moving on a little bit, how do you define an intentional purposeful? Hi. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would say doing your best to determine what your own needs, values, wishes are, and doing your best to pursue those while at the same time, bearing in mind that some of those needs include one of some of our very basic needs include uh, connection with other people and finding whatever means you can to make those happen. Um, Obvious and while respecting society's need for some kind of order, and it means that you have to respect certain limits and boundaries and so on. For many people who had New Year's resolutions that sort of incorporated some of the concepts that you were describing, but they fell off the bandwagon by now, maybe spending oh. time 
scrolling on Instagram, right. or as one of my friends sarcastic posted, his New Year's resolution was to spend even more time on LinkedIn. You know, what steps or advice would you have for addressing the description of Dr. Stringer's intentional, purposeful life? So, throwing that question to you, Professor. Oh, so I'm sorry. You want me to talk about? what I would advise for students in terms of finding intention in my classes. Yeah, um, they these projects have been fascinating. So they take the second half of the semester after they've dabbled, they spend a little time in nature. We have a gratitude week, we have a random act of kindness week. We do these, they keep a journal of their experiences and, and they create these sort of, I'd call them calico. They take pieces of each thing sometimes and put them together. Um, an example of, of one that I found that students are drawn to is, surprise, surprise, social media. They are one, one class I have them watch. Just, just observe. When are you picking up your phone? When are you sitting at your computer? What's happening? Kind of thing. Um, and so they come back and they're often, of course, lots more hours than they expect. And so the next week we try leaving the phone for an hour or two. Or if you can't, because I now have students who tell me they literally can't leave their phone behind, um, then think about why you can't and, and, and talk about that a little bit. So what they inevitably, some of them choose these projects that involve getting away from technology and they're poignantly aware. So um, several students have come up with dinner night with their roommates. They make a homemade dinner, everybody puts their phone in the drawer and they sit and they have dinner. Sounds really lovely. Somebody says, well, I got to keep mine near me because, you know, my mother's going to call or whatever it is. And suddenly they observe how it changes the whole theme, the feel of the evening, but they still can't stop themselves. Um, and so the advice I give them is expect that it won't go perfect, but keep trying. Take little, take small steps, make little changes. Little changes will compile into big changes. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I do. Um, first of all, I just want to say, I, it's funny because I spend most of my time in the consulting room dealing with people's intrapsychic issues, but I 100% agree with what Professor Hutt is saying about the need for structural changes. Um, college, I, I have worked with many college students, and it's insane um, the amount of pressure that students are feeling. Um, an internal shift about that may also have to do with recognize the, the student recognizing what's good for them, not necessarily having to feel like they have to rise to some outside standard. I mean, obviously they have to do it to some extent in order to get through school, but, but also recognizing that their whole self-worth is not based on their performance. That, that's one of the things. Um, but, one of the things I think that's tricky about social media and part of the reason that a lot of times students and other people will turn to it is sometimes that's a substitute for, for direct connection, that, that social media is a way of trying to find connection. And some students and people have difficulty working on their own. There can be under underlying issues about that. Um, sometimes things like working in a library where there are other people around and provide enough uh, sense of the presence of others to make it possible to, to do work on their own without resorting to social media. But I, I think that is one of the difficulties about it is that people are dealing with a certain amount of social isolation and then using social media as a kind of substitute for that. Um, I think there's also a piece that in terms of the, the part about worrying about a mom calling is I, I think the most recent generations have a different set of uh, relationships with their own parents. And there may be much more communication that goes on between parents and young adults and figuring out what amount of separation can be okay and good for everybody is also part of the picture. I wanna also return back to this concept of narcissism as 
Sarah, you did note that it is a complex uh, issue. It's not yeah. just something overly into themselves. It's a bit beyond right. that. But you think that even a positive focus on an intentional, purposeful life can be a typical trait of a narcissist with grandiose ideas of their overblown sense of their impact in the world? I mean, is it all a positive thing or positive narcissism? Does that weave in there with it too? It's a really good question. I think there are instances where... Someone who was narcissistic or had a certain amount of grandiosity, if you pair that with a, a, an amazing amount of talent, it can lead to interesting things and wonderful accomplishments. And sometimes that amount of grandiosity is needed in order to break, especially with things like performers, to, to break through to a certain level. Um uh, I'm not sure that totally answers your question. Um, yeah. Very good I mean, I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is, generally speaking, it's not not so useful. As, <laughs> and, and some of the people who are able to accomplish those things in their personal lives, you wouldn't want to live with them. Um, and oftentimes that's where those people are more likely to get into therapy. Sure. Dr. Hud, do you have any thoughts in terms of narcissism and its psychological, I mean, impact where you see the impact on greater society? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, narcissists, as I said before, they want attention, right? It's going to come to me. And um, the idea that I'm trying to avoid getting into politics. But politics is the is the forum, right? We watched last week a vote in the House, and and all attend all eyes are on these people who want this position. Um, and I think in our you know winner take all society, a lot of times now people think that you have to I have to get the post, I have to get the position. There's less concern for. I, I wrote a book on teamwork called the athletes covenant and and teams team is in my history and to me teamwork is about filling a role and watching the collective success of a group right and that's so important in teamwork i don't even know what i did to help us win but we won and it's great and i think that kind of that way of thinking seems lost at this point in our society that that the the ability to do something quietly but do it in a way that really alters things and changes things People are doing it every day, um, but because of social media and because of the posts and the hits and the things that we are able to see, those kind of people tend to get lost more often, I think. So there's no counter model to that, that because anytime I turn it on, I'm going to see the other one, right? Dr. Stringer, I'm asking for a friend. Literally, this is not me. It's not for a friend. <laughs> Disguise it as literally for a friend. Um, but I do have this friend who consistently falls in love by the most insufferable narcissists for lives. Who falls in love with narcissists? She always says it's because she's just a really nice person. But right. I'm wondering if she's consistently beholden and in awe of such people, if it's not because she's nice, but what attracts her reflects her values of whom she secretly wishes that she could be like. Uh, too judgy or fair enough? No, I think that is one of the paths. <laughs> um, there, there's something that they kind of have dubbed a vulnerable narcissist who, who seems vulnerable on the surface and doesn't look like they're narcissistic, but under there, there often is a, a kind of grandiose sense of things. And it and it's not uncommon for them to be attracted to someone who has a more outward version of that. That being said, I, it's not the only path. <laughs> um, I think a couple of the other ones are that oftentimes if someone who's narcissistic falls in love with someone else, Oftentimes they're falling in love with a fantasy to some extent of the other person. And if you're the object of that fantasy, it can be wonderful to have all of that 
attention and glorification of you and you're the, the best person who ever walked the earth. The problem is inevitably someone's flaws are gonna show and then narcissistic people tend to idealize and then devalue and then you're gonna go from the top to the bottom. Um, so, but that can be another path. And there's a third one in there, what was it? Um, that, oh, sometimes people who had somewhat narcissistic parents um, became very accustomed to taking care of their parents emotionally by providing the kind of recognition and flattery and children have a way of knowing even without knowing it kind of what their parents need and try and often try to provide it to them and so if that became a habit and that also became a way of that that feels like love to you um and you're going to find somebody that just repeats that hey, dr hud narcissists like donald trump people can see the harm that they inflict in, in the world but what harm do narcissists, just everyday Joe narcissists, do to the happiness and health of society overall? I, I think the this tendency is diminishing our respect for each other. It's diminishing our, we, we would be better people if we could embrace difference, if we could invite difference. Some of the most enthralling experiences I've had in my life are being in other cultures where I'm getting exposed to new ideas and new ways of thinking. And narcissism to me is 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 solid. It's central. It's, it's going to be this way. Um, and it's going to be one way. And if you don't fit in, you don't fit in and, and low levels of tolerance. And I think that that's something I, I see a lot more of. And, and, and really importantly, I think this is a really important point. It's come up in class many times. So I teach the class also on social inequalities. And this semester, for the first time, my students said, we need a class on how to listen. We've learned a lot about how to speak. We've learned, we get oral presentations all the time. Um, the class is about dialogue across difference. And how do we learn to talk to somebody who maybe holds a different idea than I do? But many of the social issues that we encounter these days have no right or wrong answer there. They wouldn't be an issue if there were two sides being debated. It would be decided that it had to be one way. And since we're debating it, there are other perspectives. And really, we invested a whole lot of energy in having that conversation. Interestingly, it doesn't come up as often in the happiness class, I think in part because students think they all have the same definition of happiness, when in reality, when I read what they write, they don't. Um, but they kind of think they do. And so I think the the detriment to our society is this idea that there's going to be one approach or one way of seeing things. And and I don't have to listen to your point of view anymore. Dr. Stringer, can you give some pointers or advice on becoming a better listener? I was going to say, just do it. No. <laughs> 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 no, <laughs> let me think that through a little bit. Um, if there were a course on listening, how would that be there, there, there actually are courses on, I mean, I think things like motivational, trainings like motivational interviewing talk about how to do that. Um, where you kind of make sure you're, you're acknowledging the other person by saying mm -hmm, and that sort of thing if you're doing it as a fake it won't work <laughs> um and making eye contact um making one of the other ways they talk about is making sure that you're processing well enough that you can kind of mirror back what the other person just said to you kind of in your own words um I, I realize that this is something therapists like the air they breathe. So like re reflecting on what you're actually doing when you're doing it is it's like remembering how you learn to ride a bicycle. I mean, hopefully most of us had uh, an inclination in that direction to begin with. But anyway, um, 
leaving space, being aware of when you might be taking more of the floor than necessary. Um, that's what's coming to mind immediately. Okay. Okay. So we have one minute left now. So in terms of salvaging or pushing perseverance for a mindful, intentional, meaningful, happy lives, your last words, one minute each. Um, Dr. Hud, can you go for that? And then Dr. Stringer. I would say authenticity, what I began with, just right. trying to figure out who you are and then just be comfortable in your own shoes. Um, I took a class this past year in, I'm a certified forest therapy guide now. And everybody in that class, we, there were tree huggers, but they were all comfortable with being tree huggers. Uh -huh. um, you don't encounter tree huggers in your everyday life. So if that's what you are, go be it, go do it. And you'll be happy. I think we're on the same page about that. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, in fact, I think being a little too driven about finding, you know, I'm going to be mindful and, you know, I'm going to have a happy life. The, the, the drivenness alone can be problematic. Um, you know, I, I think there, there's a, when we're doing therapy, there's a piece about trying to, to change the things you can, but also accept where your own limitations are. And some of that self-acceptance is also part of being who you are. Thank you very much, Dr. Elizabeth Stringer and Professor Suhad. I apologize we're out of time. Okay. And Harry Droz and Paul Bass, thank you. And to our listeners, we appreciate your being with us today.